Hebrews chapter 6, and um, look at a bit of a different message tonight, a bit of a, give you a bit of a principle in the Word of God and then teach you a bit of our history as a, as a nation, and um, look at Hebrews chapter 6 verses uh, 10 to 12, and I think it's, it's good for us to be mindful of, of history and mindful of how God has worked through the course of the making of, of people, of nations, of different things. And there's a principle here in Hebrews chapter 6, notice verse 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. And notice verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And the writer of this letter to the Hebrews was really emphasizing to the reader the, the need for them to stay true to the, the principles of the gospel and the simplicity of it. And he's reminding them that there are those in, in verse 12 who through faith and patience in, inherit the promise and who continue to believe and continued by faith to be able to see out all of what uh, God had given them through the gospel. And he's saying there, be not slothful. And, you know, I think sometimes that those of us who, you know, we recognize, generally speaking, that we have great liberties as Christians in in this country of ours, that somewhat we have at least some semblance of of Christianity still, and and perhaps even those who would go so far as saying that Australia is somewhat a, a Christian nation, I would beg to differ there, but... We recognize sometimes that because we've had the gospel at least and the work of, 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 of the Lord here in, in our nation for years and years, that sometimes we can have this attitude that, well, you know, the job's done. And while the, the, the work really is just about us just being in, in our time and in this place, and, and sometimes we can take it for granted and, and be a little bit slothful and a little bit, you know, taking for granted what those in the past have, have labored to ensure we have. And I see it in different ways. I see it sometimes in, uh, in families. I see it with those who perhaps they've had generations of those who've been faithfully following after Christ. They have a, a great testimony in their heritage of those who in in many generations have followed after the Lord and now it's their turn and there's a bit of slothfulness. They just sort of come to church. It's just part of their, their practice. It's part of their heritage. And I see it in churches who grow their own. And, you know, yesterday we had another wedding here and a photographer was sort of joking because I knew that the bridal party had arrived on time, but they were delaying for, you know, for, uh, for suspense, Right making sure that the, the groom was sweating like he should have been, right? 
And, um, and he, he sort of mentioned to me, he said, oh, you know, I, he, she probably went to the wrong church. And I said, oh, I'd have a hard, hard, uh, hard time believing that she grew up in this church. And there ought to be a joy in us about raising our own in the, in the, in, in the church. There ought to be a joyfulness in us to see those that God has given us in, in, in rearing them to, to just come and be faithful themselves. But you know what I find is, is sometimes when, when that happens over and over, there's a slothfulness. There's a taking for granted. They, I see sometimes young people who their grandparents and their parents come to church and, and they've been part and parcel. They've got a history in that church that sometimes they can be a little bit slothful and sort of just, well, this is who we are without taking real ownership of it themselves. And God's warning there that we ought not to be slothful, but instead followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I think it's needful for us as, as Aussies in this generation and, and as Christians who God has placed in this, our nation, to recognize again that there were those who right from the outset saw something greater in this nation. You know, they didn't just simply say that this was going to be a settling of a colony. Really, from a standpoint of history, Australia is 236 years as a colony. That's, that's really, from a world standard of things, it's still a young nation, isn't it? It's 123 years as a nation, and while you look at our history, it's not littered with perhaps well-known personalities that shook continents for Christ. There are those who played a role in making sure the gospel reached our shores. And there are those whom God used so that this, his word would be preached this, uh, here in this our island continent. And we're going to look at a couple of things tonight as we think about that. And hopefully we just, just think about that, not be slothful, but be followers who through faith. And we need to just, just own up to the fact that, you know, it's not just that, that we have what we have, it's we arrived here and it was given us in many ways. You know, I, that's why when I stand up here, I recognize again for, for me, those who, who stood here prior to me, but those who prior to them came and established and, and came and, and made sure that we had a nation that had the freedoms that we have from a religious point of view and have the freedom that we have uh, to be able to practice the faith like we ought to. But I want to go through a brief history and then some background and then go through and give you a couple of principles tonight, just a couple of, of challenges that we learn from, from history because the Bible tells us to not be slothful. That means to be active. That means not to just take it for granted. That means not to be, sit idly by and, but take a little bit of activity and ownership and energy because of those who we can follow. But you understand that the, there was a proposal that Britain uh, f- found a colony of banished convicts in the South Sea. You know what that is? It's terra australis, to enable the mother country to exploit the riches of these regions. And that was put forward in 1766 by Colton Henry in the, in the document Terra Australia Cognita. Now, I'm telling you this because that whole time period in, in, in history was all about exploration and expansion. And actually, there were many who 
who tried to tried to colonize and tried to discover Australia prior to the Brits getting here. In fact, the, the Brits only beat the French by two weeks. La Perouse was going to end up um, claiming Sydney Cove for the French. Can you imagine being French? <laughs> we have one. We'll take them. <laughs> but you see that, that, that they're probably, if that happened, then we would be mainly a Catholic colony, right? Because the French were a Catholic stronghold at that time. And so you understand that there were a lot of things in play here that actually God in his sovereignty saw. And, and so following the loss of the American colonies after the American Revolutionary War, Great Britain needed to find an alternative land for a new British colony. So you imagine that there's a knock-on effect there. And Australia was chosen for settlement and colonization began in 1788. And rather than resorting to the use of slavery, slavery to build the infrastructure for the new colony, it was decided that convict labor instead was going to be used and it was a cheap and economically viable alternative. And so it, we understand that. I think we understand probably in, in learning about Australian history that really we're a penal colony. It's commonly reported that the colonization of Australia was driven by the need to address what was overcrowding in the, in the British prison system. But it, it wasn't just that. It, it wasn't really economically viable to transport prisoners halfway around the world just for that reason alone. And so they understood that many of those convicts that were going to be sent over to Australia were skilled tradesmen or farmers who had been convicted for trivial crimes and were sentenced to seven years, the time required to set up the infrastructure for the new colony. And so really they, they were a little choosy on who it was that they were going to send over to this new colony of New South Wales which was going to be Australia. Convicts were often given pardons prior to or on completion of their sentences and were allocated parcels of land to farm. Right, so they weren't just any old convict. No, they were greatly skilled. It was, it was for the, the whole purpose of setting up a new colony. On the 13th of May in 1787, the first fleet of 11 ships and about 1,530 people under the command of Captain Arthur Phillips set sail for Botany Bay. The fleet of 11 vessels consisted of over 1,000 settlers, including 778 convicts, 192 women and 586 men. A few days after arrival at Botany Bay, the fleet moved to the more suitable Port Jackson where a settlement was established at Sydney Cove on the 26th of January, 1788. The colony was formally proclaimed by Governor Philip on the 7th of February in Sydney, and Sydney Cove offered a fresh water supply and a safe harbour, which Philip famously described as being, without exception, the finest harbour in the world. And if I can be a little bit biased, that is true, all right? Okay. He says, here a thousand sail of the line may ride in the most perfect security. And so they, they chose it because it was a safe harbor. His instructions to the new colony were to enforce a due observance of religion and good order among the inhabitants and 
takes such steps for the due celebration of public worship as circumstances would permit. In the first draft of these instructions, he was to grant full liberty of conscience and a free exercise of all modes of religious worship not prohibited by law, provided his charges were content with a quiet and peaceable enjoyment of the same, not giving offense or scandal to government. He was to cause the laws against blasphemy, profaneness, adultery, fornication, polygamy, incest, profanation of the Lord's Day, swearing and drunkenness, to be rigorously executed. He was not to admit to the office of justice of the peace any person whose ill fame or conversation might occasion scandal. He was to take care that the book of common prayer as by law established be read each Sunday and holy day and that the blessed sacrament be administered according to the rights of the Church of England. So that was the, that was the main uh, the main thrust of the government was really to for moral excellence, right? The, the permission to practice worship wasn't really for the, the genuine reason of it. It was to ensure that there was control in the colony, but not enough control to overthrow government, all right? And in fact, Cap- Captain Philip himself, he was not an advocate of the gospel, when you look at and study the life of Arthur Philip, he was a high churchman. Okay? He adhered to the strict Anglican religion. And in fact, he was unhappy that an evangelical chaplain was assigned to the first fleet. Because all he really cared about was just general control of the masses. He, wasn't really, he didn't really understand that the thing that would change a nation was the gospel itself, but there were others who understood that. And that, that evangelical reverend who came on that first fleet was one Richard Johnson. And again, I noted this morning in the, in the message that if you go down to, uh, to downtown Sydney in Circular Quay, you can actually go there. I took some of our young adults there our first time that we went for, for True North Summit. And we got to sit there and, and just observe that, that monument. And if you walk around to different places in, in Sydney, you'll see little plaques about Reverend Richard Johnson. And he was one that eventually he moved out to the western parts of Sydney from Parramatta. Uh, some of you hail from that area. I, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. But he would go from, from Parramatta through to Tungabi through to Windsor, and he was a circuit preacher. And, and one, of the, one of the things that, that I, I, as I studied his, his journeys, was that he would go past where our church was in Sydney. He had a, had a stop there in Seven Hills. And I, I often thought about that and how the, the very early seeds of the gospel was planted right there. And, and, and God was working, though, and you know, you, you understand again that there was great exploration, great expansion of the known world in those times, and and there was this this particular uh, reason that the, the the British wanted to settle in Australia, but God, I think, had other reasons, and there were cer- certain people, certain personalities in England, who they had a not only a, an interest in the new colony they had an interest for the gospel in the new colony. And they understood that the movements in the world weren't just movements in the world, but perhaps opportunities for the gospel. And they had somewhat a mindset about that. And and I want to say that 
you know, sometimes we're, we're, not, uh, we're not so aware. And I think as Christians, sometimes we can uh, put our head in the sand a little bit. And we could sort of lament uh, the happenings of the world without really understanding that if we just understood the season, then we might be better off for the gospel in this season. If we just understood how things were, would work, then perhaps we could take advantage of that and, 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 and sort of understand how we can, in our time and in our generation, get the gospel out. But there were some men in, in England who understood that this was actually something greater. And one particular man who was instrumental in actually getting a chaplain onto the, onto the first fleet was one that we know uh, perhaps as the writer of a famous hymn. And this man's name is John Newton. What's the, what's the hymn that we all know he wrote? Amazing Grace. Right? So the writer of Amazing Grace, he saw the need in the new colony for there to be a gospel preacher, and he lobbied the government. And John Newton, along with his friend William Wilberforce, who we'll, we'll note in a little while, he understood that there, was a, that there was a responsibility for them to, in establishing the, the colony, for there to be a chaplain. And John Newton was one of the key men who had worked to have a minister of the gospel on the first fleet. He, he wrote in his diary in 1777, it was 10 years before the fleet sailed, he says on the 8th of July, 1777, my leisure time and rather that more than I can well spare taken up with the reading, with reading the accounts of the late voyage of Captain Cook in the Southern Ocean and round the globe. He notes, teach me to see thy hand and read thy name in these relations. Thy providence and goodness are displayed in every clime. May I suitably affected with the cause of the countless thousands of my fellow creatures who know thee not, nor have opportunities of knowing thee. Alas, that those who are called Christians and who venture through the greatest dangers to explore unknown regions should only impart to the inhabitants examples of sin and occasions of mischief and communicate nothing of thy gospel to them. Lord, hast thou not time for these poor, benighted souls when thou wilt arise and shine upon them? You know, he's hearing all of these accounts that Captain Cook was, all of his adventures into the South Seas, and all John Newton could think about was the lost souls on the islands that, that Captain Cook was writing about. And he was saying, what a shame it was that we, and he considered Britain a Christian nation, would go there and, and not teach the gospel, but actually, uh, uh, actually teach the opposite, bring sin into these realms that they're now discovering. And his heart, his whole mindset, as he thought about the opportunities in the South Seas, was for the gospel to be established there. And so John Newton had a great influence on, on one parliamentarian named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was an English politician. He was a philanthropist, a leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. He was a, he was a native of Kingston upon Hull, a Yorkshireman. He began his political career in 1780 and eventually became the independent member of parliament for Yorkshire. And in 1785, he underwent a conversion 
and became an evangelical Christian, which resulted in major changes to his lifestyle and a lifelong concern for, for social reform. And later he founded the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, so the RSPCA, right? But he was also a church, he was part of the Church Missionary Society, and he also championed free education. But, but Wilberforce was one that, that, that John Newton leaned on to lobby Parliament to ensure that Richard Johnson, a chaplain who was a gospel preacher, could get on that boat. Because they understood something about the, the Great Southland. And actually, what, when you look, read the diaries of both John Newton and William Wilberforce, they had a specific name for Australia. They called it the Great Southland of the Holy Spirit. Their understanding was Australia, if it could be founded right, and if the gospel could be here right from the outset in its pioneering days, could be a sending station into the South Pacific and could be a bastion of the gospel right here in the South. That was their heart. And that's their desperation to ensure that there was someone on that boat that could lead this new nation, not with, the, with the, just an attitude of gaining all of the natural resources of it, not to establish just a new colony with the British flag, but with the, the flag of the cross, and understood that, that in establishing a, a new society that there was a great need to establish the Christian faith. And... Um, Someone said about Wilberforce that no one did more to establish the church as part of societal structure. And someone in an essay wrote this about him, while others were regarding the Australian continent only as a vast receptacle for convicts, Wilberforce's parliamentary influence was used for laying the foundations of the church, which eventually occupied every inhabited district of New South Wales. Mr. Wilberforce understood that a strong nation is built on a strong church. So he strove to strengthen both. And so it was through Newton and Wilberforce's influence that a provision for a chaplain was made by the Prime Minister William Pitt, a good friend of William Wilberforce. And so you, again, you, you think about all of what was happening, the sovereignty of God in this that at the same time when exploration was happening, he had raised up his servants right there in England to be an influence within even the halls of decision-making. And as a result of that, them having the right heart and the right purpose and the right, the right attitude to, to things that were happening in the world, because their conversation was about the gospel, then they were able to then put on that boat in that first fleet, this one Reverend Richard Johnson. And Newton wrote to Wilberforce in 1786. He said, To you, as the instrument, we owe the pleasing prospect of an opening for the propagation of the gospel in the southern hemisphere. Who can tell what important consequences may depend on Mr. Johnson's going to New Holland? It may seem a small event at present, so a foundation stone, when laid, is small compared with the building to be erected upon it, but it is the beginning and the earnest of the whole. And what he was saying was, you know, this, this, 
decision seems to be just a small one, but, but his heart was that it would affect the, the foundational principles and the foundational concepts of a new nation. He was hoping that this would be the, the, the founding that we would see the, the, the work of the gospel prosper in this new land. And what of this Richard Johnson? Richard Johnson was this 32-year-old Yorkshireman. He was a Cambridge graduate, and he was the chaplain chosen to voyage with the First Fleet. As the first, and for a while, the only Christian preacher in Australia, Johnson wrote this, It is my duty to preach to all, to pray for all, and to admonish everyone. And Philip ordered the first service of public worship in Australia, as I mentioned, at, uh, on the 3rd of February. It was at 10 a.m., citing that no man was to be absent on any account, whatever. So everyone was there. First time in Australian history that it was 100% attendance on a Sunday. <laughs> Good start. Right, the meeting place was a great tree close to the harbour, and there Richard Johnson preached from Psalm 116. In November 1788, the boundaries of Johnson's parish were extended by the settlement of Parramatta or Rose Hill, as the district was originally called. At first, he made monthly visits on Sundays by boat, then fortnightly. And then later on, he obtained a horse. He would ride the 22 kilometers to Parramatta, right through to Windsor, and include a sermon to the convicts at Tungabi. And if you've been to Tungabi, nothing's changed, all right? But... Johnson departed Australia in 1800 due to poor health, but still had a heart for the great Southland. Okay, his epitaph reads, To the memory of Richard Johnson, who died March 13, 1827, aged 74 years. He was the first and for many the only chaplain appointed to the extensive colony of New South Wales, and afterwards 17 years rector of these parishes where he faithfully preached Christ and him crucified. He wrote this in his diary. He wrote this, This will be my daily prayer to God for you. I shall pray for your eternal salvation, for your present welfare, for the preservation, peace, and prosperity of this colony, and especially for the more abundant and manifest success of the Redeemer's cause and kingdom, and for the effusion and outpouring of his Holy Spirit, not only here but in every part of the habitable globe. Longing, hoping, and waiting for the dawn of that happy day when the heathen shall be given to the Lord Jesus for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession and when all the ends of the earth shall see, believe, and rejoice in the salvation of God. I am your affectionate friend and servant in the gospel of Christ, Richard Johnson. And so his whole heart was just for this nation to be a sending station throughout the course, uh, throughout the whole known world for the gospel. Then the one who followed Richard Johnson was one Samuel Marsden. Okay, in, in March 1794, a like-minded assistant arrived for Richard Johnson, a fellow Yorkshireman, Samuel Marsden, who took over the work in Parramatta. Okay, uh, Marsden preached in areas around Parramatta like his namesake, the prophet Samuel, Marsden himself was a circuit preacher. Eventually, Marsden took on Sydney when the, the Johnsons left in 1800. 
And he began to travel from Parramatta to Ngabi, Seven Hills, Rouse Hill, and on to Sydney. Mazen also became a magistrate and was also overseeing chaplaincy for the industries being developed in the colony. There were other men who were instrumental for Christ and contemporary with, with Marsden. There was Governor Hunter, who laid the foundation for St. John's in 1803 in Parramatta. That's still standing today in the, near the town hall there. William Cowper, another gospel preacher, arrived in 1809, a writer of some hymns. Commissary John Palmer, a surgeon Thomas Arndel, Robert Campbell, Australia's first merchant. Yeah, for those of you who are somewhat familiar with Sydney, these, these last names will, will make sense. A lot of our suburbs over there are named after them. Roland Hassel, Francis Oakes, and James Main. They were missionaries that relocated from Tahiti in 1798. Marzen's duties later stretched to the mudflats of the upper Hawkesbury River, and Marzen and the nucleus of men around him faced great opposition, though. And even in the early stages of developing our nation, a growing paganism amongst the colonists started to begin. And unfortunately, it was those in government who were the main detractors as they sought power and control over the population through trade. And so there was this competing forces at, at play even then. And as Marsden observes, living where iniquity abounds so much, our civil connection with the worst of men renders our souls dry and barren. We feel, li- we feel little of that vital spirit of life which is essential to the happiness of the real Christian. And, and from the get-go, there was an oppressive spirit in, the, in, in Australia, a real, a real wrestle for the soul of the nation, and, and that's still true today, isn't it? And, and there were those that were, were, had to really labor for the gospel's sake. Now, really quickly, what about the Baptists? Right, we're a Baptist church. The Baptists began coming to Australia by the 1830s. Our colonial religion had established a clear pattern. On the one hand were the official chaplains, the moral policemen of the colony, but on the other hand there was the emerging uh, alternative religious presence and Baptists became a part of the unofficial evangelical movement and were welcomed as a sign of a maturing religious society in the new colony. John McCaig conducted the first Baptist service in Sydney on the 24th of April, 1831. It said about this this one, he was an eccentric and unstable Scottish preacher. Sounds like most Baptist preachers these days. One whose one pastorate at Bingley, Yorkshire had ended in disaster. (laughs) Only the best get sent here. McCaig arrived in Sydney unheralded and unknown, but he did conduct the first service of believers' baptism in Woolloomooloo Bay on the 12th of August, 1832. It was a source of amusement to the vulgar crowd who gathered, but a committee of various various, uh, faith traditions supported McCaig, and a site was granted by the governor, and plans for the erection of a Baptist chapel were made, and 50,000 bricks were purchased. Then Pastor John Saunders is is arguably the most outstanding colonial Australian Baptist minister. He stands in the shadow of other Christian pioneers but has no equal among 19th century Baptists. Saunders was an outstanding preacher, a wise pastor, a strategic church planter, a supporter of world missions and exemplar of Christian social responsibility. 
the, the Baptists first came to Queensland in 1855. Okay, and, and City Tabernacle Baptist Church, which is, still has a building downtown, was the first Baptist church opened um, in 1859. And the church moved to their present site on Wickham Terrace um, just shortly after. And so we look at that. The, from us, our, our history really starts. The first ever independent Baptist missionary that came to Australian shores, from all accounts, from wherever you read, was Dr. Randy Pike. And so I'd love to, to research a little bit more and maybe sit with some of you who knew him well. And I'd love to, to teach you about that. But there's, there's a lot there, isn't there? There was a lot of desire right from the beginning. There were a lot of those who through some difficult times in the, the founding of this new colony, who, which later became our nation of Australia. And uh, we won't take the time tonight, but there are those who, in 1901, even at Federation, were very influential, who were Christian people who we never read about. But what are the lessons learned really quickly? You know, what we need to understand is we've got to keep the gospel central to our identity. You know, right from the outset, there were those who were willing to keep that as central to their identity. And, you know, sometimes we, we, we don't see that as being, uh, as being somewhat uh, a priority in our day. Sometimes as Christians and Australian Christians, we sort of think that we have a, a minor place. But listen, from the very get-go, there was a real drive and desire and a right one to make sure that the gospel had a real presence in this land. So we've got to keep the gospel central to our identity. We've got to persevere through hardened responses. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that when we go and tell others that there's some rejections. You know, it, it came from right from the beginning, even from the government of the day. And we've got to, though, the, the reality of that, we've got to persevere even through hardened responses. And we can't give up just because someone is unhappy with us giving the gospel. We've got to keep going. That's another lesson. We've also, thirdly, we've got a plan to open new territories. You know, the only way that the gospel was propagated was for these men to sacrifice their lives, to go into unknown territories and to, if they needed to, take several churches and to just keep going. And to open up new territories as, as new cities were built, they had a desire. And as the colonies moved out west, there was that great desire. We've got to open new territories. Hey, listen, we ought to be mindful of, of where the growth areas are in our nation and, and pray towards planting new churches and, and being a gospel presence. And, and not just, not just uh, you know, count the ones that we have, but understand that we've got to continue to desire from God labors for the field. And so we've got to plan to open new territories, but we've got to have the attitude, lastly, and understanding that God is sovereign. That, that whilst they understood something of their time, that we need to understand something of our time. That we've got to understand that, that God in his sovereignty allowed us to live in this time. And we've got to do our bit. You see... The, 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 the advice of Scripture is that we be not slothful. That we're not lazy with the faith. That, that while others persevered through the early founding of our nation, 
that we've got to continue the work even though we find our own challenges in our time. Let's pray. And Father, thank you, Lord, for the time. And I know, Lord, it was a bit of a different take on things tonight, but I pray that that information, Lord, of, of history and personalities would just, Lord, just add something in us, dear God, by your Spirit, to do something in our generation, Lord, in this nation that you've given us. Father, I do pray for Australia. Lord, I pray for us Christians that we would wake up, and that we would take a greater stand for you, that we would have a greater heart to, to want to win our neighborhoods and our communities and our, our cities and our towns and our workplaces and our school places, dear God, and that we would, by your grace, by your power, by your enabling, Lord, see a, a great fruitfulness for the gospel. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to have a, a spirit of pioneering again, that, Father, we would not look at the, the, uh, the, the hastening of the day of, of recognizing that pr probably we're living in the last days and, and not throw in the towel, but we would do our bit, dear God, in this time to affect this place for the power and the, the presence of the gospel. And so I pray that you'd help us as we head into the week to be buoyed by the fact that, Lord, you, you sovereign, in your sovereignty, you allowed a, a, a people to be established here and that as part of that, there was a great desire and, Lord, perhaps a great responsibility now for us for the gospel to be brought forth. So I pray that you'd help us as we head off into the week. Bless each one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.